This is the Bates Bobcast, our weekly podcast where we take a look at the week that was in Bates Athletics. My name is Aaron Morrison. This week we continue our Y Coach series with our national championship winning women's and men's rowing head coach, Peter Steenstra. That's coming up on the Bates Bobcast. <laughs> Since he was named head rowing coach at Bates in March of 2009, Peter Steenstra has turned the program into the finest in Division Three. Bates women's rowing has competed in the NCAA championships in every year, including six second-place finishes and four NCAA Division Three championships in the last five seasons. The only Bobcats in Bates college history to win a national team championship. In 2019, the women's rowing first varsity eight won its third straight and fourth overall gold medal in the collegiate eights at the world-famous head of the Charles Regatta. And in 2018, the men's rowing team became the first in NESCAC history to compete at the prestigious IRA National Championship Regatta. Here's Peter Steenstra on why he coaches. Believe it or not, I remember the moment the first person ever mentioned to me that I should look into or consider coaching. And uh, he'll never hear me say this, but his name is J.B. Robinson. And he was a teammate of mine. It was my sophomore year at Hobart. And I don't know, we were just kind of sitting in the dorm after a, a good hard workout. And, and he just mentioned it to me that, you know, you ought to think about coaching. You'd be really good at that. And it didn't come up again for over a year or maybe two at that point. But I mean, I always remembered it. You know, no one had ever kind of mentioned to me that there was something that they thought I'd be good at doing. The funny part there is that JV ended up quitting. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you end up actually getting started as a coach? Well, I started because um, right at, at graduation, I, I, well, rowing tends to go over or past graduation, right? We, we were racing into June because we were going to the IRA regatta. And so I was just so focused on that. I was not being a great student. I was not really uh, looking down the line to see about jobs and things. I had some stuff lined up because I, I had already been doing a lot of um, yacht deliveries. So that was something I did in the summer times. Um, and so I had a few of those yacht deliveries lined up, you know, taking a boat from the coast of, of Maine south or, or vice versa. And I was actually on a boat going through New York City. And I got a phone call from a fellow Hobart alum who had accepted the job, the head job up at Colby. And uh, he said, I, I know you're not doing anything terribly useful. So why don't you come up here and, uh, and coach rowing? And I, I don't know, I, I just, it's not just that I didn't have anything else major or significant lined up. I certainly could have gone into the life of yachting and boat deliveries and all that. I could have be, I could have really become a full-time uh, captain and, and made a career out of, out of that. Um, but just appealed to me. I, I was interested in trying it out. I, I, I think I still had some unfinished business to do. I, I think a lot of us do that. Um, you get to the end of your collegiate athletic career and then you realize, wow, I still want to do more of this. No one had suggested to me that I was going to, I had what it took to row at the next level. And so I didn't even really put any consideration into that. But the coaching that seed had been planted, I think, by 
by JB all those years ago. And, and so something about it made sense. And my friend, Mark, who was the coach and, and he's the one who invited me up there. He made it sound appealing and it, it sounded like fun to go up and give back to the sport that had given me so much already and uh, be able to coach alongside a, a fellow schoolmate and teammate and, uh, and a good friend. So it worked out really well. And also a return to your home state because you're, you're from Maine, born and raised in Maine. From an early age, were you on the water outdoors, stuff like that? Yeah. From an early age, I, when you grow up on a fishing village, uh, which is where I was, I grew up in Southwest Harbor. So we had, we had both ends of this pretty extreme spectrum. You had, on, on one side, you have this company called Hinkley Yachts, which builds, you know, the Rolls Royce of the sea. Very expensive, high-end sailing yachts. And that's where I ended up doing a lot of my delivery work from. But then the other side of it is, is uh, the fishermen that are in the area. Um, so I just knew a lot of people that had boats. I never had a boat as a kid, um, but everyone that I knew had boats. And it was a common thing to go out and, and end up rowing someone else's kind of dory or dinghy around the harbor. Um, you know, it was, it was a normal thing to do in a small town like that where everyone knew each other. I'm curious about um, when you first started at Colby as an assistant, right? I mean, what were some of the learning curve kind of in terms of adjusting to being a coach after having, you know, never done it before, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the first thing was um, to, to completely shift your mindset from being that athlete that can just, when things aren't going well in that sport, I can just put more effort into it. I can just work harder. And, and um, that's, even though working harder as a coach can be beneficial, you have to be a little bit smarter about what you're doing. You have to put some more thought into it. And, you know, I, I just, it took a while to get some of those frustrations out that young coaches all have. Um, it, it's like the whole, why aren't you just doing what I'm saying? Why are you doing it wrong? I can't get you to change. You're doing it wrong. Stop doing it that way. It's wrong. Right. And so you, you get frustrated and, and uh, when you're a young coach, it's harder to get uh, the athletes to listen to you. Um, you're a little bit too close to, in their, to their age. Um, so you don't have that wisdom. You don't have that same confidence that a more experienced coach or an older coach is going to have. Um, and they, they, of course, can see right through it. And they're going to challenge you, um, especially on the men's side, you know, when I'm because I was coaching both, both uh, teams up there. But, yeah, they um, – the guys really challenged me early on. And I, of course, had to just try to be louder than they were and, and uh, <laughs> you know, more excited when things went well and angrier when things didn't go well. And I had to throw stuff out of my launch and bang on the side of the boat and, you know, use a lot of poor language and, <laughs> you know, the, the same stuff that most young coaches will do. Luckily, though, I, I was also coaching women and I at least had – a layer of caution or whatever maturity just because I was coaching women as well. And um, that I think allowed me to at least forced me to think of something other than that swear word that you want to use at that moment when you're so frustrated and you don't know how to get them to do what you want on the men's side, the swear word comes out on the women's side, at least some other word <laughs> comes out. <laughs> 
it caused me to at least pause long enough to think of another word. Well, I'm curious. Cause I don't see you banging on the side of the boat now. So obviously you've, you've, you've grown out of that, right? <laughs> I, I've pretty much grown out of that. I've, I've also learned to, to yell at the right times, which is almost very seldom on the water. And usually if it's on the water, it's only, it only has to happen once a season. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how'd you go from Colby to Ohio state? I felt I was really good as a coach. I, I had some, some good success. Uh, the first, boat I ever coached went and won New England's. So I, I felt like I knew what I was doing. And even though the head coach was a good friend of mine and everything, he, and he gave me a lot of latitude in uh, coaching up there. I really felt that I was a head coach and I, I wanted to go and do that. Um, I was a finalist here at Bates actually in 99 it was myself and one other or 98. Um, and um, they chose the other guy and rightfully so he's much more experienced and all that. Um, and then the Ohio state thing came up. And so it sounded interesting to me to, to go to the Midwest and go into a big 10 kind of world. And I knew that that club had, had had some, um, success in the past. And I knew that it was sort of having some trouble at the time. And so I just dove into it. And I, I got to say that it was a great experience. It was a great way to learn nuts and bolts of coaching. Um, the, 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 of course, the, the hard part about it was I was not dealing with an administration. So I wasn't learning anything about how to communicate with your athletic director or all the assistant directors or anyone else that, that works for a department that's support staff for the coaches. That's something I didn't have. So I was very much a, you know, one person operation in a hundred to 150 person club. Ohio State, you mentioned you didn't really get to deal with the administration because it was a club, but what was that Big Ten atmosphere like? I mean, for you, you've been mostly at, you know, smaller schools. So what was that adjustment kind of like for you? It was football. That's what it was. <laughs> That's the adjustment is, is being in a place where football at Ohio State, I don't need to explain, I, I don't think beyond that, but it ran the entire city, like nothing on that camp campus happened without football having some type of uh, influence upon it. So where we were was this, um, this big old, like a uh, commons type building. It was right beside the football stadium. So for the first time I, I, and I didn't know anything about, I knew that Ohio state football was big. I didn't know to the extent of how it, how it sort of takes over the land and so then that first year I was like scheduling practice on a Saturday morning and, and <laughs> me like, what are you talking Saturday morning? We can't have practice Saturday morning in the fall. Are you kidding? And so that didn't work out. And so I had to adjust to that. And, you know, so it was, it was me realizing that as I looked at my calendar for the year and how we were going to do training regattas and everything else, I had to take into account what the football schedule was because I can't get the trailer in and out on a, on a football weekend, you know, so I'd have to plan ahead to make sure that we had the trailer loaded and out so that Saturday happened. And, you know, we weren't trying to, to move around at that time. A few years there at Ohio State, you decided to come back to the East Coast, right? Take us through your journey after you left Ohio State. I know you were at, I believe, Cornell uh, for a little yeah. while. And then uh, what, what eventually led you to Bates, I suppose? Well, went to Cornell. Um, I did my... A master's degree at Ithaca 
the college. And so as part of that degree, I was coaching at Cornell, um, which was, which worked out really well. And I learned a lot there. Um, but for both my wife, Christina and I, the whole goal was to be able to get back to Maine. We're both from Maine. Um, we've always wanted, even though we, we had gone away for school and some work and some various things, we, we wanted to be able to get back. Um, all of our families are here. And so the assistant job kind of opened up here and the Cornell stuff did not, there was no invitation to stay on after my, my degree was over. Um, and so it was a, a bit of a risk on our part, but we decided to do it. You know, it was, um, even though there were other opportunities that were further out um, across the country a little bit, um, it was just, Christina had another year and a half of school to go. And I had, I had this option and, and a couple others that were further away, but we thought it was worth the risk to see what would happen if I was here. And you always want to be kind of in the NESCAC anyway, and you want to be in, in the region that you want to be a part of and, or the conference or whatever it may be. And, and so we just kind of rolled the dice. And, and even though I didn't, I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't really able to support myself a whole lot and uh, throughout that year we did we did make it work and and uh, luckily for me it, it panned out you, you mentioned you know being an assistant for so many years I know you personally as a head coach you give your assistants a lot of um, responsibility right I mean they have they have on the women's and the men's side um, is that based on on what you experienced as assistant or is that something you were like, Oh, I wish I had had more responsibility when I was assistant. How, how have you developed that common in rowing to have the assistants do so much? I suppose. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it was mostly because that was what I've been doing all that time. Mm-hmm. Um, was so yes, at, at, at Colby that my, the head coach up there was giving me a lot of responsibility. He was fairly young fairly new to, to coaching. And, and so we were a good team. The two of us together were a really good coaching staff, but he gave me a lot of responsibility, which, which worked out well. At Ohio state, at one point I had 11 assistant coaches or, you know, they were all volunteer, but I had, I had a huge staff when I was there because we had 150 athletes. So I was just very accustomed to being able to delegate being able to give people some responsibility. I knew I had to, I couldn't possibly be there to coach every single kid. Um, I couldn't be in contact with every single one of them aside from like a weekly team gathering that we would have like on a Saturday that I would actually see them all at the same time. Uh, So I think it was just, it's just a matter of, of, of the experience that I've had so far has been to give those assistant coaches as much responsibility as you can. The, the more that they're responsible for, the more they're invested in it, the more that they, they take that ownership and they want something to, to be done. The best example we, that we have here that I think is pretty unique compared to most other, other teams or even other programs um, at other schools is that I completely give all, of, all recruiting responsibility over to the assistant coaches. I am there to just help them, right? If they need me to, to talk to someone on the phone, I'm happy to do it. If they, if they schedule people to come in and meet me and they even choose who needs to or doesn't need to meet me for various reasons, you know? Um, so 
you could you could say that there's a risk in that. Like you might end up with a team full of people that are going to reflect the personality of your assistant as opposed to your personal your personality. But it's worked out pretty well so far, and and um, it, it takes a major workload off of my shoulders so that I can focus on the the people that we have, even with myself and two assistant coaches, you know, we're two full teams. We have right now, we have a roster of a hundred. So we have a lot of people. And if I'm not, if I'm paying attention to the potential future people that would, who may or may not come to the program, and I'm not putting my effort into those who are currently invested and currently on board and currently want to do what needs to be done here, then I think I've got my, my focus in the wrong place. Um, and for the assistant coaches, uh, the, when this started, you know, where are we, 14 years ago or 13 years ago now? Um, I saw that as kind of uh, part of their compensation, you know, to call them the recruiting coordinator was my way of giving them this hands-on experience that was then marketable. So if they, I don't expect any assistant coach to be here for more than, a, you know, three, maybe four years. Um, at Max, um, which is part of the reason why Lizzie Kinney is so outstanding. She's been here all this time for us, but you know, I don't expect them to stay that long and, and, and it's hard to get them to come here when we're off the beaten path, we're out in the woods a little bit, even though Lewiston and Auburn is a great, great town to be a part of. When you compare that to Boston or Philadelphia or someplace in the Midwest or West Coast where the real rowing hubs are, um, there's just, there's not, it's difficult to get people to come up here, even with the success that our teams have had. So by giving them that responsibility that they can really truly claim as their own, then that becomes something that they can then add to that resume. Um, and then as they're looking for their next job, they're that much more prepared for it. They're, they're much, that much more attractive. Yeah, you touched on the huge roster size. I would compare it to like track and field and swimming. Those programs have big rosters also. How do you approach it from a head coach trying to at some point get to know a hundred student athletes uh, over the course of four years? <laughs> the, the simple, the first step is I tell them on day one, I'm only going to learn your last name. At one point, I think we had, it was either five or six women with the first name Grace. Right, right. Yeah. And, and in fact, we even put a four together that, so there was a boat that was full of grace because you know, all four of them had the first name grace, but I, I call everyone by their last name. So that's the first thing <laughs> that I can do to try to make it a little bit easier for me to remember some people. Um, I don't pretend like I'm going to get to know every single one of them closely. Um, and again, by giving the assistant coaches a lot of responsibility and, and giving them you know, groups of the team that, that they can sort of organize and focus on, then, then the athletes are getting that one-on-one -on -one attention they need. They're just going to get it from the assistant coach instead of me. You climb the ranks a bit, you get into the top three eights here, whether it's the men's one, two, or three V or on the women's side, then, then you're going to be seeing a lot more of me, you know, just by, by being at the top of the team. And then speaking of that, um, obviously the program since you since you started here has you know achieved in, incredible heights. I mean, take us back to 
winning that national championship for the first time for the women um, in 2015. You've had, you'd had those long string of second place finishes. I think you were third the year before you actually won it all when you broke through. What was, yeah. what was that like for you? Cause it was a, it was a weird one because based off points. Right. But yeah. what yeah. was the moment like when you learned, when you figured out, Oh, we're, we, we did it, you know, we're champions. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> um, that was back when uh, Kevin McHugh was the AD and he was there he was at the regatta and, and he, he, he looked at me and goes, you won. And I decided so to look at him and say, you sure? Did you do the math? Cause I'm not, I'm not like, I was a little bit off on whether or not we actually won. You don't want to, you know, celebrate prematurely, you know, you, you want to make sure. And then the head coach of Trinity, his name's Wes Ng at the time. And he came over and to, he said, that was the first one, wasn't it? And I was like, first one, what? <laughs> so between, uh, between my own, director of athletics and then a, a rival coach. Um, I finally, I finally gave in, gave into the fact that we had won and it was, it was a great feeling. And I was so happy for the women who had done it that year. And they had been, like you said, a part of that long string of, of just being so close and so far at the same time. Um, but we, we learned to focus in the right place, which was to focus on, the process, which we all talk about, um, not necessarily talking about winning, but talking about the benefits of what you're doing here and who you're doing it for and why you're doing it. What's the overall purpose? And those are the conversations that we ended up having a lot more of than here's how we're going to win kind of stuff. The process you often talk about how every year you're climbing a mountain, right? Take us through that kind of philosophy. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to our sport in that it really is kind of repeating the same stuff over and over again, whether or not it's the, the stroke cycle itself, it's just, you know, blade in, push, blade out, recover. And you just do that over and over again. Um, so everyone kind of has the same job, uh, coxswains aside, but all the rowers, they all do the exact same thing. So whether you're in the top boat or the bottom boat, um, but it takes really fast and hardworking bottom boats for that top boat to be at the top. So you can't say to a group, okay, so all of you are kind of learn to row and you're gonna be, you know, not really a priority for anybody. We're just gonna focus on the top two weights because that's what matters. If you do that, then then you're you're one body away from from failure because all it takes is one person in the top two weights and then to go to be injured or something or sick or who, whatever it may be. And then and then you don't have no depth after that. So we focus pretty heavily on the middle of the team. Um, and this this metaphor of the mountain is, it's simple. The, the mountain is always gonna be a challenge. You can take this metaphor as far as you want, but it, whether it's wet, it could be the weather, it could be anything about the challenges of the mountain are, are gonna be different every time you climb it. And your, you know, the, the mistakes that you can have along the mountain only become more costly the, the, the closer you get to the top, there's less ground the further you get up there. There's less room for those mistakes. And we're either going to do this as a team or, or we're not. And you can't have just like just one person is going to go stand on the top. You can say that it ends up being just one or two of those top two boats that make it to the top, but there's only so much space up there at the top of the mountain. We can't have a hundred people standing on the top of a, of a mountain. Um, and then, of course, 
the year ends and we head back down and then the seniors graduate. So they, they say their farewell. And then we bring in a new batch of first years and, and you have two classes worth of people or three classes worth of people who have, who just did this trip up to the mountain last, last year. And you have your juniors who are now seniors. This is their fourth time doing it. And they get to go to the front of the pack and say, look, we've done this three times now. We know the way, but it's still going to take all of us in order to get, to get up there. Um, that's kind of, I guess, in a nutshell, the reason why we use that, that mountain metaphor. Awesome. Who are some of your biggest mentors, you know, you know in coaching? Who, who are people who have had the biggest influence on you in terms of developing your style? Well, I can say that Mark Davis, the one who I mentioned about Colby, he's been very much a part of my life ever since um, I started rowing as a student, uh, so at Hobart. Um, so he's always been there. Um, he's just one of those grounded, um, so soft-spoken, thoughtful people that, that, you know, someone like me who can be hot-headed and get a little excited from time to time and get frustrated. So I get angry. He was always just a good person to, to have that I could call or, or if I was around with around him at the right time, he would, he knew how to calm me down or pick me up, you know? Um, so I, I learned a lot just from working with him. Um, I can say that when my experience at um, Cornell was important because of the head coach at that time, his name is Dan Rook. Um, he just, he was so completely different from any other coach that I had experienced or, or knew it at all. And his whole approach was so relaxed that I can safely say that I really have taken a lot from his lead on that, how to, how to have a big team and just like let everyone do their work, give small, you know, as little guidance as you can, you know, allow them to come and ask for help. And, and really allowing the team to take that ownership. I, I don't have to be at the front all the time. In fact, maybe at the beginning of the year, I'm at the front, but at the very, by the end of the year, I, I'm not at the top of the mountain, right? It's the team is at the top of the mountain. And even then it's just two eights worth of them. I'm not up there. I'm, I'm someplace back on base camp three or whatever they call it, halfway up, halfway up Everest, right? So the, the team has to be able to do it on their own. So learning a lot from him was important. And then to say this kind of fairly and delicately, I, I learned a lot about what not to do from, uh, from some, some coaches too. And I think that we shy away from talking about that because we don't want to insult anyone or, or hurt feelings or whatever it may be. But there is a lot to be said for learning what not to do, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, from my experience, it's been more valuable than, than anything that I learned about what to do from watching someone else. Interesting. Um, you know, uh, going back to the program a little bit, you wrote to IRAs when you were at Hobart. You returned as a coach in 2018 with the men. Uh, what was that like to return to IRAs? I mean, how did it compare to what, when you were there? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, for better or worse, the regatta was very, very much the same. Um, you know, the same organization involved and, and everything, and the way that it's set up and the fact that men's rowing is not an NCAA sport. And so the regatta was run by the stewards, which are, you know, the five 
five major universities that started it years and years and years ago, which has since changed that whole process. But um, I did go there a number of times with Ohio State. Okay. We were able to go there then. Mm -hmm. And so I'd, I'd been a part of it, I think, through those years anyway. Um, the, the best part was being the first NESCAC to be there in with an eight. That was, that was really fun. And those guys that worked for that worked very hard for it. They were very focused on that. Um, they wanted to be able to go and be the ones to do it. And, and that's what made that trip so enjoyable. Um, lining up with top end programs and being able to, to, to rub paint or whatever the expression is, you know, uh, with the likes of Cornell or GW or, um, some of those other schools it was a lot of fun. So it was, a, it was a great experience. Awesome. What are your thoughts you wanted to share about coaching that we haven't got to talk about yet? Um, well, I think that, well, let me say that as I've matured, <laughs> as compared to when I started out, I've, I've really spent a lot of time talking about or thinking about what, what is the purpose of this, Right. And the more I'm involved with faculty here at Bates and the more conversations I have uh, with those folks, I, I realized that obviously we're not creating national team oarsmen and oarswomen. We're not making professional athletes. We're not even really in the business of producing coaches here. Um, so what is ultimately the purpose? We start every year by saying that, that, um, we take good people and we make them better. And so that's really boiling it down to the very, very basics. You come in as a first year, we've gone through the recruiting process. You're already a good person. That's, that's how you get here. But what can we do to make you better through this sport of rowing? And I think that even one step further than that is, is to kind of go back in time a bit and remember why we go to college to begin with which is to take a young adult and take them from the role of consumption and move them into the role of production. So up until this time in their life, they've done nothing but consume, right? Whether it's information or stuff, whatever it may be. They're in, that's, that's what we all do when we're up until we get into college. But by the time you're done with college, you need to be either in a role of producing something, a product or a service, or you've got to be well on your way toward an advanced form of that very same, same production. And I think the sport goes a long way to help with that process. Um, I think the reason I say that is because you have the name of a company on your back when you, when you go to work, right? When we go to a regatta, we always give them the same speech that do not forget while we're traveling, you represent the school and your coaches and your family and everyone else. And when we're out on the race course and we get these results, um, it's for Bates. It's not for you. It's for the school. And this is similar to what it is when you go to work out, out in the field or whatever your industry may be. You're not doing it just for you. You're not doing it just for the paycheck. Um, you're doing it because there's a greater purpose behind the whole thing. And so I think 
I think that a lot of what we're doing is trying to help um, expedite that process of switching someone from consumption to production. And I, and I really feel that that, that help that athletics helps a lot with that. Great. Well, Peter Steenstra, thank you so much for joining us on the Bobcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Next time on the Bates Bobcast, we'll continue our YA Coach series with our head women's basketball coach, Allison Montgomery, and our head men's basketball coach, John Furbush, from the class of 2005. And yes, the formerly promised head squash coach, Rye Hergeth, will join us soon enough, most likely after the new year. That's next time on the Bates Bobcast. Thanks. <laughs>